Rusty Quill presents. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Tonight's broadcast is brought to you by Dr. Quint's Phrenology Salon. An assessment of occupation, disposition, and temperamentality by caressing the curves, knobs, and telling shape of your skull. Instinctive feelings of man in common with the animal world is felt with expert fingers to the surface of your scalp. Come explore your potential. Know thyself at Dr. Quaid's Phrenology Salon. In a strange city lying alone, resignedly beneath the sky, the melancholy waters lie. In the winter chill of Lanula Park, from the muddy bottom of Parvum Pond, and waters dyed black of its history, a figure was pulled from the icy slush on a cold morning. The alarm raised in the early moments of the day by a scruffy Constable Hughes, struggling with a young, strange boy, Enoch Green, who was standing on the ice next to a sizable crack. Hughes' young newsboy friend was missing, and Shiner, as he was known, could have been in the ice. They sent out a new inspector named Bennett, roused from his desk at Needle Street. He interviewed the locals, including a young woman named Charity Souter, who was looking after Enoch at the time. Madame Viola, a rich and prominent member of the Park Row elites, harassed the inspector to give up on the newsboy and focus instead on finding her lost peacock, Plum. Her servant, Pumble, appeared soaking wet and distraught, but short on answers. Inspector Bennett and Constable Hughes met at the end of an exhausting day to get a closer look at the figure the other men had dragged from the ice. It was rushed away and they never confirmed who or what it was. They took the steep steps to the medical examiner's cooler to get some answers. 
Daphne Wegg was the acting medical examiner after the previous one had suddenly switched professions in a rage of frustration. She upended the classic decor, opting to use the basement morgue of the Needle Street station to support her passion for the burgeoning art of photography. Among the occupants lying chalky and dormant on slabs, she had trays for processing. Strings from the ceiling corners hung black and white prints pinched by clothespins. The smell of fixer and stop bath mingled with stringent cleaning chemicals. A muted red light in the corner, photographs of bodies in every fascination, jars of specimens she had bought to photograph, a growing museum with exhibits of the city's demise and deformity, artistic document of every way the body could abandon itself, a gallery revealing in the pallid glow against the mint tile. Black water dripped from the sheet and flowed into the floor drain. Dr. Wegg stood over the slab. She wore a thick rubber apron, long black gloves, and held a sharp pair of elongated scissors that were her favorite tool. Wegg greeted the two men, said she hadn't looked at this one yet, pulled up her scissors and gave the sheet a tug, up and away from the figure. She shoved the point in and cut a long slice lengthwise down the sheet. Constable Hughes rubbed the brim of his top hat through his fingers as he fidgeted nervously, staring at the sheet, hoping it wasn't his lost newsboy shiner. The gnarled claw of a left hand pushed up from under the lip, making its outline against the inky gossamer shroud. Wegg used her scissors to rip the last few inches of the sheet, and Hughes almost fainted. Wegg pulled the two sides of the sheet back, birthing the figure from its speckled linen womb a sopping ligature of bones from a partially decomposed skeleton. It had turned completely black from dye in the water. There were decayed leather straps around the feet, riveted to heavy lead weights, and a leather strap wrapped around the mouth as well. The bones were well intact and still partially connected. It's a boy, Wegg said in a congratulatory tone. She looked closer. A man, for sure. Maybe early thirties. From the element strapped to him, I'm going to guess he died from drowning. Inspector Bennett nudged Hughes, who opened one eye to peek. Upon realizing it wasn't the kid, he opened both and looked at the skeleton. He breathed a sigh of relief. There's no way it could have been Shiner. It had been there for a long time, and it had turned black with dye from the water. Bennett looked closer at the straps. What is this stuff? some poor fool get the wrong end of someone? Why don't you interrogate him? Anything in his pockets? Bennett waved off Hughes. There were no pants or pockets left to speak of. No, Daphne said, but she reached into the skeleton's ribcage, grabbed onto something and had trouble yanking it out. She used both gloved hands to yank it back and forth and finally pulled hard. Out popped a small, soft wooden cask as it displaced one of the ribs. Did you bring me a present? Wegg asked. She carefully picked up the cask like a newborn and held it to the light. On the top where a tap would normally set, there was a tiny lock, a small metal contraption with a keyhole. What is that? Hughes asked. Bennett took a closer look at the cask. No other markings, and although some minor wear on the outside... It looked somewhat new. It hadn't taken any dye from the water. Hughes grabbed it out of Wegg's hands and shook it. Doesn't sound like anything. Maybe it's empty. Bennett steadied him, so he stopped shaking the evidence and gave him a good stare. Good thing it's not a bomb, he said. 
From the darkness of a corner in the dank room, a small voice echoed out. Why would you put a lock on something you could easily smash open? Bennett and Hughes turned to see into the darkness. Daphne wasn't surprised. It's just a kid, Hughes said. It was a kid, a girl slowly coming into the light. Hughes and Bennett turned to see a diminutive girl in an ash coat and a black trilby, approaching from deep in shadow. She held herself somewhat sternly for a girl her age, and was wearing the signature attire of the Curio, a mysterious set of operatives recruited as extensions of the D.O.C., trained to slip in and out of environments unnoticed. Inspector Bennett, Constable Hughes, this is Maisie, the Curio. Maisie, this is Inspector Bennett and Constable Hughes, from the park. Maisie likes to drop in from time to time, don't you, Maisie? Wegg said. Nice buttons, Maisie commented on Bennett's coat as she passed them. She stepped up onto a stool so she could look at the skeleton on the slab. She pulled off her hat to get more light and used tweezers to examine the leather straps on the mouth and feet. She took a moment and then reached into the inside pocket of her coat and produced a small doll with a round body, not unlike a hard-balled egg that had been painted gray with realistic-looking sunken eyes and a sallow expression of a middle-aged man. It had gangly arms and legs that belonged more to a marionette than a doll. Maisie looked into the doll's face earnestly. What do you think, Mr. Fitz? She asked as she pointed the doll towards the skeleton and pulled the sheet further back so it could get a good look. The adults in the room hushed in an honest attempt to see if it was actually going to speak. Maisie nodded with several, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, me too. Hughes chuckled. He bent down towards the girl and looked at the doll. Hello, Mrs. Maisie. Hello, Mr. Fitz. Are you playing inspector today? He asked, patting the doll on the head. Maisie pulled the doll away. Mr. Fitz was locked in the bin. He likes puzzles just like I do. Now I have to show him or he'll drink all the medicine, she said, concerned. Yeesh. Hughes rolled his eyes and looked at Bennett. Bennett was trying to keep up after what already a very trying day. Mr. Fitz thinks these remains look old and thought they cleared the pond a long time ago. Maisie took the cask into her small hands and tipped it towards the light so she could get a better look at the lock. This is a delicate mechanism, like a giant locket. He said. Maybe he was a pirate and it's his treasure. Hughes stroked his sideburns as he grew impatient. He grabbed the cask from Maisie. Sir, get her out of here and let's wrap this up with a bag of bones. We still have one missing kid, a missing bird with an angry missus, and a pile of paperwork. And you know with my pudding fingers, it's going to take days. Your illiteracy is well established, Bennett agreed. Wegg, anything you can tell us? Bennett asked. About the skeleton, not sure. Looks like they may have been strapped down and drowned in the pond. Heavyweights in a gag, you can tell it's been down there a long time. The cask? Not really. It hasn't been down there long enough for the dye to really penetrate the wood. But it does seem a bit banged up and waterlogged. There's some wear in the lock too, so it's been used a few times at least. Any idea where they keep casks like this? I could put together a source list, Bennett said. Maisie wandered away and looked next door in front of the boilers and incinerator. What do you see, Mr. Fitz? Me too. She turned back to them. Mr. Fitz thinks you were treating hypothermia down here. Hughes and Wegg shared a look. 
Those are just some old clothes I was going to burn, Wegg dismissed her. Bennett checked the time. Lock up the cask, we'll get a good look at it tomorrow. Wegg, see what you can see. Everyone get some sleep and we'll figure this out in the morning. I've got to get back to the missus. He stood over Maisie. She stuffed Mr. Fitz back in her pocket. You going to be nosing around this one, he asked. Depends on what else you find. Missing kid turns into an antique floater and a mystery barrel. I might just make my drop this week. She put her trilby back on her head, slipped a small photograph to Wegg. Ooh, conjoined twins, she said. Later that night, Bennett returned home to a quiet apartment. It was clean and somewhat small, the colored neon just through the drawn shades from the sign of the Sobu factory. A plate with a sandwich and a cup of cold tea sat on the kitchen table. He heard the light ticking of the clock on the mantel. He walked quietly back to the bedroom and slowly opened the door. His wife was asleep on their bed, her head resting on the edge of the pillow. The room filled with spindles and spools of multicolored thread, a stock of needles and a pile of clothes ready for repair. He folded his coat and placed it next to the edge of the bed, slipped his fingers under one of the white buttons and pulled until the thread snapped. He carefully placed the white button on top of his coat and sunk into the chair to sleep. The morning edition of the Lantern paper had a front page headline that read, Investigation Abruptly Ends, summarizing that no one was injured, it was all a mistake, and nothing of consequence was recovered from the pond search. The rumors that had been stirring amongst the crowd had seeped into the city and set off the opposite reaction of the public, who were now convinced there was a greater mystery at play. The city rushed the park in droves to get a look and hunt for clues. The murmurs re-upped the park's curse. The flood was coming back to haunt them, and the pond needed to take a spirit now and again to even the odds. We've talked a bit about white lies and black lies, and even heard a few. But have you ever heard of a red lie? A blood lie? The kind of lie that intentionally causes harm. A sharp blade of a lie hardened from malice. The red that doesn't wash off no matter how hard you try and scrub it. Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No. This my hand will rather the multitudinous seas in Conadine, making the green one red. The Macbeth effect is a phenomenon where one tries to use cleaning to rid oneself of guilt. This can be the cleaning of one's own body, or even extend to others or one's surroundings. Curious that we feel that physical cleanliness can impact our emotional stragglers, that washing can make the lies go away. If you've ever tried to absolve a hangover by tidying up the next day, well, you've felt it. Madame Viola's Park Row house, Lavendula, was spotless in a way it almost hurt to look at. Her manservant Pumble's guilt polished the silver into incandescence. He wasn't able to sleep and spent the night quietly tidying and dusting. He'd lost Madame Viola's prized peacock plum on his walk the day before, and Madame Viola was out for blood. Pumble entered Viola's office promptly at dawn with her special hot egg phosphate, a lavender viola. To create a lavender viola, take one tablespoon of lavender syrup, one beaten egg white, two teaspoons of acid phosphate. Mix well, pour into a tall glass, and then add warm water slowly while stirring until full and carefully dressed with cinnamon powder. Viola lived off of them. Pumble could make them in his sleep, blindfolded, 
sleeping blindfolded, one arm asleep, the other behind his back with his feet if he had to. Madam had tolerable days and very dark days. She kept her office mostly. She'd take meetings with essential people on some days, and then she'd lock herself away for days at a time, not letting anyone in. Pumble kept delivering the hot drink, leaving trays outside her door at regular intervals. This morning, he had added extra cinnamon, the steam rising from the tall crystal. He set it on her table. Madame Viola looked out her window at the park and the ensuing chaos of the morning. Come, madam, drink it while it's still smiling at you. Viola didn't make eye contact, just pressed the tip of her tongue against the sharp point of her tooth and continued to glare out the window. Out in the park, in the particular chill, in the morning, the pond was buzzing with activity. The press and public had descended, which brought a whole host of vendors selling sugar peanuts and dipped sausages. The Penguin Club had shifted the date for their seasonal dip in the hopes of getting some press coverage and attracting more members. They disrobed at the edge of the pond, scuffled about in the cold to make sure everyone got a good look at their exposed bits, and then strutted into the cold water to submerge themselves and bring on brisk energies for the coming year. The amateur sleuthing society sniffed around the edge with magnifying glasses and notepads, picking every spare bit and leaf with tweezers and documenting it. If a scrap of cloth or other tidbit was uncovered, they would all hover together and titter about how it fit into the grand scheme. Multiple mystics and a couple of psychics attracted tourists onlookers as they flashed crystals or placed hands on temples to vibe out energies and divulge secrets in the pond. One enterprising young man had started to bottle the pond water as a cure-all and snake oil to sell to passers-by, but was stopped by Constable Hughes. The Admiral Bridges, resplendent in his dress uniform, medals, and tricorn hat, set his canoe in the waters to establish a line in case of peril. His second-in-command, the executive officer Farragut, rowing diligently as they presented their colors brightly, waving in the slight breeze. On another raft, a couple of the galvanists from Dr. Vega's lab had a gramophone whose horn was pointed at the water's surface and had sunk a listening device near the bottom. Were there more secrets the pond had to divulge? Were there more bodies hidden in the depths? Was there some kind of creature waiting to pull anyone down into the murk? Do you see these fools? Madame Viola said, her back to Pumble. Look at them rushing the park to gossip over a little missing hound. The front bell rang. Viola's two daughters had heard about the commotion and rushed home to comfort their mother. They crowded in the front door, shivering. Cornelia and Cooper, her skinny and well-fed daughters, were the perfect pastiche and parody of their mother. They had a sympathy for Pumble, he being the only other one who knew what it was like suffering for years under their mother's thumb. Cooper had even gifted him a small sanity pillow, a decorative pillow that Pumble used to scream into in private whenever Viola was being most herself. On very bad days, Pumble would carry the pillow under his arm like a security blanket. Going against traditions, her two daughters both had jobs. Cornelia and Cooper, she didn't name that one, worked the telegraph office connecting messages across the city. Viola had insisted they get jobs not for the money, and even though the society folks looked down on it, it was worth the risk for them to find partners. They spent much of their youth in the parlor. She needed them someplace busy with fairly well-off candidates of means. If not being married to a co-worker, then meeting someone on the line as perhaps their charm would rub off down the wire. 
No one would ever expect heirs to the fortune to have jobs, and Cornelia and Cooper used a different name on the paperwork. Over time, the two had developed a twin-like language, tapping on things in telegraph codes so their mother wouldn't catch on. Pumble met them at the door, pillow under his arm. He welcomed them and took coats and hats, put on some tea, and directed them upstairs to their mother's office. They knew every corner of the house well. The house was previously filled with taxidermy and paintings of great hunts, swords and spears, and all regal presentations of great beasts. Viola had them all cast out on the death of her husband and redecorated the house to a minimal comfort, even removing any artifacts of Cornelia and Cooper's childhood to a chest in the attic. Since Viola rarely had visitors and she kept to her office most days, there wasn't much use for it, and thus only one servant to handle the duties. The house had never been warm, even when Leopold was alive, so much so that Cornelia's favorite game as a child was to bring various objects to Pumble for him to feel and then remark on the chill. Ah yes, this spoon, very chilly. Oh, a blanket, even this has collected some chill. Thank you, Ms. Cornelia. Oh, Teddy is very chilly. Let's warm him by the fire, shall we? Cornelia brought a sketch she'd made of the missing peacock plum in case it would be helpful in the search, and Cooper brought a box of macaroons in their mother's favorite color. The office was tidy, Madame Viola standing at the window watching the rabble. She was reading the faces of the people walking by, quietly accusing them of being the birdnappers. That one. No. Mm, that one. Oh yeah, look at his face. Every time someone got close to her steps, her heart raced a little. She was waiting for the post, waiting for a thug, waiting for a group of ruddy bastards with an open sack demanding money. She was tempted to stand on her landing with a sharp letter opener to gut the bastards, but knew the safest thing for Plum was to play the game. Pumble hadn't gotten a good look at anyone. He even didn't quite know what happened. In the early morning of Plum's walk, he had slipped the leash again, and as he scampered away, Pumble's pretty sure a couple of men swiped him. Pumble gave chase, but fell into a large puddle of water and slush, twisting his ankle, and he limped back to the pond. Madame Viola always blamed herself for employing and trusting such a fool. Pumble entered with tea for the two sisters. We're expecting the ransom request any minute, she glared at Pumble. I'm willing to trade hostages. As Pumble turned to set the tray, a chill ran through the entire three floors of the brownstone as Pumble received the dirtiest of looks through his back, like a workhouse dagger blunted for cartage. Cooper and Cornelia reached for each other as a dark childhood echo ran past them. I assume you are by this morning as you would have guessed I would need to open the safe and it would be a good time to ask for your allowance. Mother opens the vault from our pastries and needlepoint. The girls shared a glance. We brought macaroons and a sketch, they replied, to help. We're going out to help look for Plum and ask around. Have you seen it out there? It's all gone Lisa. Cooper patted Pumble's pillow to let him know that she was there to support him. He didn't flinch lest something heavy get lobbed at him. Viola gave a muted smile and then looked at the hot drink on her desk. I didn't ask for this, she bellowed, pointing at the lavender Viola. Madam, it's your morning. I never asked for this. And if you would manage your time better, you would know that. And this place would not be so filthy. The moment I find anyone even remotely capable, I'm sending you back to the bins to dust brooms in a rotted shawl. Go with these two and make yourself useful. If the themes come back for the ransom, you'd muck it up anyway. She waved them away. The three gathered their coats and set off on the landing to the brownstone. 
The Park Row brownstones all belong to the barons of industry. The Salt Baron Fulcrum's home, Halite. The Cloth Baron Edmund Green's Mulberry. Madame Viola's late husband was the Lie Baron and the origins of his fortune. She had renamed the house Lavendula shortly after his death. The Spirit's Baron house known as the Revels. And beyond a thick hedge, at the end, set the house for the Castrati Soprano. A dark house that had not seen any stirring for some time. The quiet house of whispers, or as it was formerly called, the Sato Voce. But we are getting way ahead of ourselves. Next door to Madame Viola's house at Edmund Green's house, Mulberry, Inspector Bennett was escorting the renowned phonologist Dr. Quaid up the steps to attend an arranged visit with Edmund and his strange ward, Enoch Green. He was there to make an assessment if the boy was at all dangerous and if he could get any answers of the whereabouts of the missing newsboy, Shiner. Dr. Quaid had a bald head, a curly wax mustache, and a monocle wedged so hard in his eye you'd have to pull it out with pliers. He was a stocky and determined man who walked briskly two steps in front of Bennett at a mean handshake. He wore soft white gloves to preserve the skin on his hands so that he could practice his art without calluses as he felt the bumps and bowls of his scalp. Edmund had lost part of his leg in a recent factory accident, the same accident that had orphaned Enoch. He limped out the front door into the crisp afternoon air and welcomed the two, motioned for them to come inside. Inside the parlor, Charity Suter didn't seem as fond of the doctor or this visit. She sat on a small velvet couch next to the fire and quietly welcomed him. She scowled at Inspector Bennett, still sore from an invasive line of questioning the day before. Bennett removed his hat and smiled a greeting anyway. No hard feelings from his side of things. Edmund was rambling. Good morning, doctor. I've always been fascinated by the phonetic arts. Edmund seemed fascinated by the science. You say you can tell everything there is to know about a personality with this. Ailments, appetites, most of future lifestyle and demeanor. The doctor pulled out a leather case and unfolded it on the parlor mantel. Pulled off his gloves, placing them carefully inside. You know, Doc, I think you and I are cut from the same cloth. He pointed at a tray of refreshments. Help yourself to the cheese while I find Enoch. Enoch, come here, boy. Let this man feel your head. He stepped partially out of the parlor to shout up the stairs. Edmund turned and exclaimed, Bah! There was Enoch, already in the room, dressed in his little suit, one hand in his pocket, the other on the furniture, quietly blinking to himself. Damn! There you are, boy. Here you go. Meet the good doctor, he shoved Enoch towards Quaid. He's going to tell your future from your head. Enoch is very unique, but we try to keep sharp things away from him. He can be a little stabby, Edmund said. Unique doesn't have degrees. Something is either unique or it's not, Bennett corrected. What? Edmund asked. Nothing, never mind, he said. Charity smirked. Quaid gestured for Enoch to take a seat in front of him. Enoch complied. Quaid withdrew long, cold calipers from his bag and took some quick measurements of Enoch's skull and its dimensions. He made some notes to himself, put the calipers away, stretched his fingers a couple times. Charity reached out to hold Enoch's hand and he didn't resist. Dr. Quaid took out several ink blot cards and asked him what he saw. Enoch didn't react. Edmund chimed in. Well, I'm not sure about him, 
but as far as I'm concerned, I saw an upside-down moth, a mouse with an umbrella, and two baboons kissing. Edmund was proud of himself. How to do? Quaid put the cards back into his bag. He slid his hands over Enoch's scalp from the rear. His intense fingers pointed like a concert pianist ready to express a complicated concerto. His eyes were wild with a fiery intensity, and he rubbed his fingers in circles around the surfaces of the boy's scalp. Hmm, yes, very interesting. Fascinating. He continued his palpation. A raisin perception? The head is made up of three grand regions, animal, moral, and intellectual. From a glance, I can tell you we are dealing with more animal from this child than moral. Some ideality? External senses of prominence? A recess, right where I expected it. Hmm. He paused in one area, closed his eyes, and furrowed his brow. As I suspected, as you can see, the raised section here, and the diminished section here, this for expressiveness, and this for social elasticity, I would assume, yes, the forward slope here, and yes, violence and temperament are inconclusive. Hmm. I won't know more until I can get him to my office and connect him to my psychograph machine, to be sure. When can you bring him? Anytime, Edmund said. Charity put a hand up. Now wait. What's this? Quaid stopped, felt again. His eyes went wide. He pulled his hands away and immediately reapplied his gloves, shoved his tools back into his bag. That's all for now. I insist you bring the boy to my salon for a full session. He nodded, suddenly rushed, and looking very spooked. I'll send you my bill. The doctor wrapped up his overcoat and tipped his hat as he left. Edmund walked him out eagerly, trying to pitch the man a line of custom hats that would treat various conditions. Bennett sighed, avoided Charity's glare, and made his way out the front. He took one last look at Enoch and looked at Charity. Be sure to tell me if he says anything. Charity crossed her arms and noted that the doctor had forgotten his calipers. Bennett took them out to him. As Bennett left, Charity crouched next to Enoch and placed her hand on his knee. He looked towards the dwindling midday fire. You've been through a lot. Everything is so different for you right now. I can't imagine how tough that's been. I don't think you'd ever hurt anyone. She tried to smooth his hair back into place, but he pulled away slightly, but she stopped. Charity could see Bennett and the doctor leaving down the steps to the street. Enoch turned to face the fire and stared into it silently. Bennett returned to Needle Street late in the afternoon, hung his coat and hat at his desk for a few hours of paperwork, and then extended a call to the lantern to talk to the head of the distribution department. He raised for a fresh, dark tea when he happened to stroll by the evidence room on his way to the kettle. The door propped open with a wedge. He saw a set of bad knees wheezing over a paunch trapped behind a thick leather belt, straining to peer under one of the cabinets. It was well known around the building that the constables liked to tie one on after hours. Typically, this might be in the lockers as they passed a flask around and told tales of the day's happenings. Or sometimes they would go into the basement, clear out an area of concrete and gamble and fight and carouse. Rumor had it that there was a persistent card game that lived down there. But one of the riskiest games that had grown among them was cooked up that week that every constable was issued a blackjack for protection or to put down anyone who was getting too aggressive. 
This little device was a section of dark, thick leather filled with sand at one end, like a mean sock. It was very uncommon that any man needed to use a blackjack in the line of duty, but the week they got them, they took to whacking everything in sight, just to see what kind of a sound and damage it could make. They even took to hitting each other, jumping out around the building with a quick whack to give them a dead arm or dead leg for a few minutes. If you saw a constable limp around his desk or holding his shoulder and bitching up a storm, it's from a blackjack attack from one of the other men. The antics died down over time, save one game that sprang up after a particularly drunken night in the basement. The men started a dare to see who could steal the most interesting but not missed piece of evidence from the cabinets, bring it down to the basement, and then shatter it with a good toss of a blackjack. Now, I've said Constable Hughes was bad at his job, and maybe that's not fair entirely. Some days he was just miserable, but sometimes he had his moments, and he had one clear talent. Constable Hughes was damn near lethal shot with his blackjack, he nicknamed Kosh. He could whip that bag across the room at blinding speed and bullseye any object. Stolen vase, crash. Counterfeit booze bottles, smash. Rare painting lifted from a gallery, slash. It was a foolhardy act to sneak up to the locker in the middle of the night past a sleeping guard. Another one to steal something and hope it wouldn't be missed. And yet one final act of complete idiocy to lob a leather sock at blinding speed to obliterate the thing. Hughes had little talents but was a king among the men when it came to the game. The men named Corpus Delicti. So to see Hughes bent over in the middle of the day in the locker room meant something strange. He wasn't taking anything out but he might be putting something back. Inspector Bennett, Hughes wheezed as he struggled to stand up. The barrel, it's, uh, it's gone missing, he shrugged. The cast from last night, the one from the water, it's gone. I placed it in here in that cabinet, locked up. We were going to have the boys pick it, but it walked away. You sure, Bennett asked. Yeah, sure, he leaned in to whisper. I suppose we could just pretend it's like it never happened, he winked. I haven't filled the report out yet. Chief Inspector Stroud, a long, tapered candle of a man, strode into the room. He removed the pince-nez from the bridge of his nose and slipped them into a discreet pocket, licked a strand of his silver hair from his eyes. An evidence party, bully for me, he chuckled a deep laugh between gritted teeth. What is it today? Adorn stolen jewels? Huffing stolen ether? I know, we just get on that nasty looking knife from that one hoodlum. We could stick it into something naughty, shall we? He rubbed his hands together. Bennett knew the more sarcastic Stroud was, the more serious the situation. They were screwed. Bennett explained the break-in and the missing cask from the pond. Have you found the missing boy yet? No. Well, I'm sure you'll get on it. Forget whatever scraps of trash you've dragged from that puddle. I'd say the real work is finding the living boy and bird, yes? Before I get another angry message from Madame Viola Walker, yes? Shall I read it to you? He pulled out a few pages from his pocket and held it up to the two. No. Another time, then? And who knows, maybe your missing item will show up. We have so many secrets in our basement. What's another broken vase or two? He glared at them, who looked like schoolboys in trouble. The two scattered, their eyes at their shoes with a streak of guilt. Stroud locked the door behind them. 
guilt eats at us from the shadows. Our deceptions navigate and rationalize until we attempt to free ourselves from its inconvenient grasp. It's easy to ignore these internal cries when among voices, but much harder when alone in stillness. Charity Souter was alone in Edmund's big house, Mulberry. Edmund had left with Dr. Quaid and hadn't stopped talking the whole way out the door. Inspector Bennett left with them and Enoch was next door with the afternoon tutor. The house was big and empty and quiet, save the soft crackling of the parlor fire. Charity hadn't liked the invasive nature of the doctor, or the way she had been all but ignored all that day. She might not be particularly fond of Enoch, but she was starting to feel for him. All alone with all of these adults buzzing in and out, all the commotion and questions. She moved the cheese platter to the hallway runner for the servants to collect, and took a moment to inspect the decorative carving knife that had been sent out with it. Very sharp and very pretty. Swirls engraved on the long blade and a pronged point. Such a fine thing. So very sharp and so very pretty. When Charity left home, she originally fancied herself a writer and would post up in a cafe every day to write. She had dreamed of a group of intellectual friends, a collection of lost generation artists and musicians gathering every day to trade witty lines and barb jokes, drink the days and the nights away. But friends never came, and witty sayings turned into an odd bit of journaling about being self-aware in a cafe. A chance meeting at a bar in Theater Row would pull her into the dramatic sphere. Acting gave her some confidence, and like most things, she dabbled, but felt more comfortable in the machinery. There was something very exciting about what happened behind the curtain. The last-minute panics, the loose threads and roped sandbags, pouring coffee into the drunk lead who couldn't sputter a line but was due on his mark in moments. She loved being the last one out, the swept boards, the large, still quiet, just her and the ghost light. The house had a similar stillness in the afternoon. This was the first time she'd stood alone within its walls, the place all to herself. The feature of the entrance was Mildred, a giant loom from Edmund's first factory. It was painted in ochre and was set with threads in a sheet, a great loud iron thing set in stillness upon a plinth with a brass plate and a nickname and script. It dominated the entryways and anchored to his success and ambition. She touched it, thinking she could feel the lives of the workers who'd ran it day and night their voices blending just barely with the murmur of the commotion from outside. She closed her eyes and imagined it was her house, to fill with whatever she wanted, to move about however she wanted, to lounge in the library, play piano in the parlor, host grand dinners. She breathed in the smell of the place, tried to know it. And then something whispered to her from up the staircase. Was that a voice? She looked up the stairway railing. Hello? Is someone up there? She heard her voice echo the silent house. Is someone up there? She called. But she heard it again. Someone talking. Hello? She slowly wandered up the stairs to the second floor. No signs of anyone. From the stairs, she saw the door to Enoch's room. It was slightly open. And she couldn't help herself. She thought... Maybe she could get her scrapbook back and no one would notice. She pushed the door open and looked a bit around the room. Nothing out of the ordinary. 
new set of clothes delivered in a wrap box from the tailor, a stack of new boys' adventure books, some games all untouched. On the nightstand, a small collection of shiny scraps, a bent bottle cap, a bit of wire, a gum wrapper, and a wooden Dunkin' penny. She ran her hand over the bed blanket to feel for any objects and checked under the pillow. Nothing. No sign of her scrapbook among his things. In the corner, Charity noticed a crack in the doors to his wardrobe. She slowly approached them, pulled one door slightly open and peered into the dark. She pushed aside some clothes on the hangers and let the light into the bottom when she heard the front door latch shut. She took a sharp breath in and in a moment of panic stepped into the wardrobe and pulled the door closed behind her, leaving it open just a crack. What was she doing? She thought. She gathered her senses and pushed up to leave or pressed her left hand into something cold and squishy. She cringed and reluctantly brought her hand to her face to smell it. Egg and cress. It was a small collection of egg and cress sandwiches that Enoch must have ferreted away for some reason. He was collecting food in his wardrobe. As she wiped her hand off on his robe, she felt next to her. It was her scrapbook, the one filled with her old memories and pressed flowers, a gift she had too eagerly given Enoch to impress Edmund. She felt its fabric binding. It still smelled like the flowers of her childhood room. Charity was a middle daughter in a big house to a dentist father and mother who was a former school teacher. She grew up in a sizable house lost in the shuffle of a dozen brothers and sisters, shuffling of school books and meals and the hustle of middle-class family life. She didn't want for much and realized early she'd need to look after herself, getting her tiny share of her parents' attention when she got good marks or played a salmon in a school play. She always had someone to play with and was insatiably curious and liked to spend the time poking around her father's office. Charity's father, Brandon Suter, was a renowned dentist and had completed several successful and difficult surgeries. He pioneered many of his own techniques and was expanding his practice so he could focus exclusively on research while his staff could see to the regular patient's needs. His favorite assistant was a bright young man named Nathan who had a talent for sculpting replacements for the rich and pulled teeth without causing much discomfort. Nathan was handsome and Charity had an instant crush on him. She was still school age and it was her first real crush. She would find excuses to deliver things to her father's offices so she could steal a smile or wink from Nathan while he worked. He had given her a book of poetry that immediately opened her heart into a new world. One late night, heading to the lab, Charity thought she would surprise her father with a packaged dinner of roast ham and carrots prepared by her mother. She volunteered in the hope she could run into Nathan and they might read some poetry together. She used her spare key to enter through the locked office doors and into the back lab. There she discovered Nathan sprawled out on the tile floor. He was ghastly pale, and the life had left his eyes. There was no sign of violence and only a small window open at the far side of the room, not big enough for an intruder to fit through. She immediately called for help and ran out to find a constable. Next to Nathan, they discovered several bags of collected teeth. He had set up a crucible and stove with bellows and beakers of hydrochloric acid. In another small sack, there were melted nuggets of silver and gold among the clinker. During the investigation, they examined patient records and discovered that Nathan had been pulling teeth he didn't need to, primarily teeth that Brandon Suter had already repaired. 
Brandon Suter was questioned, claiming he was in the office, but had no idea what happened to Nathan. When questioned by the inspectors, Charity told the truth that her father wasn't there and it was only Nathan present after hours. Without an alibi, they ended up implicating her father in a scheme to steal precious metals and killing Nathan in a fight over the Enterprise. He then panicked and fled the scene. It was Charity's statement that caused Needle Street to finger her father and get his sentence at the workhouse. The scandal and the rush trial were very public in the Lantern. Her mother struggled after the trial. Charity never forgave herself. She hid in her room for weeks afterward, her mother leaving sandwiches by her door, especially egg and cress. Charity finally escaped out her window later one night, but that's for later. For now, we have more pressing questions. If that wasn't Shiner in the pond, whose bones were they? And what caused the poor man's demise? Why did the cask bug Bennett, even though it had nothing to do with the missing newsboy Shiner? Was there a link, or did he just like puzzles like Maisie and Mr. Fitz? What shocked Dr. Quaid about Enoch so much that he insisted on more tests back at his salon? Was Charity hiding from Enoch in his wardrobe, or from someone or something else? Can we wash the blood and crest of guilt from our hands with enough lies? Or do they just add more layers, thickening the red waters dripping into morgue drains? hiding in secret corners. Can we forgive ourselves beyond the bumps and curves of our own limitations? Are we able to reclaim those moments of sincerity from amongst the more dubious? Or will we lock them away in fragile casks to be cast off into darkened waters? As you peer into your own solitary wardrobes, what voices do you hear? If you listen closely enough, don't they sound familiar? Until the next episode of Celine.
Would you like a ticket to enjoy the revelry of Moon Knight Affair? Our Patreon is a place where you can see all the sordid savagery and indecent decadence of the mysteries of our fair city. Want some answers for once? Solve the mysteries and share never-before-heard stories, music, and spectacle. Come be a part of Moonlight Affair, Silent Treatment, and Selene with the other spirits again and again and again and again and again.